Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It's not always easy to discuss the issue of race in the Chicago area these days, but especially these days, it's necessary. We're doing that this weekend with the help of Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Hello, I'm political editor Craig Delamore, and this is At Issue. wrong to suggest that everything in Chicago is about race, but racial issues touch on so much of what happens here. And it was that area that we explored in conversation with Mayor Lori Lightfoot this past week. We touched on it while talking about police officers who sometimes feel that all the scrutiny that they're facing amid the consent decree and such assumes racism. The mayor addressed the widespread scrutiny first. Well, look, the reality in the world that we live in is social media and with cameras being literally everywhere. I think officers would be foolish if they didn't think that their actions and interactions with members of the public weren't being recorded. I think they've got to operate from that premise because that's the practical reality, right? We think about the body slam video. This was a person that was driving down the street that happened to see something happening and they recorded on a video. It was completely opportunistic. But the practical reality is there are cameras everywhere. They're on buildings, they're on um, signposts, and, and so forth. So officers have to understand that their their conduct in the public sphere is always going to be under scrutiny. That doesn't mean that everything that they're doing has a racial component to it, but the fact of the matter is black and brown communities in this city have believed for a long time, and there's plenty of evidence to support that, that they're being over-policed, that they're being treated differently than people in other communities. CPD's own data has shown that over and over again. When I was doing the work at the Police Accountability Task Force, that data was very, very clear. So the practical matter is that the way in which we police is absolutely going to be viewed through a racial lens, whether we like it or not, and we've got to deal with the cars that were dealt. But fundamentally, if officers lean into their training and are doing the things that we've put in place and that the department will continue to put in place around constitutional policing, there's not going to be any issue. Policing is messy. It's often dangerous for the officer and also for um, citizens. But if they're, they're following their training, then there will not be any issues. Going more on to the, the civil side of this, the city council is almost certainly uh, this week going to approve beginning recreational marijuana sales in the city. Um, but obviously several aldermen were, were distressed that despite the process being even ostensibly designed to for inclusion, and I mean the state law, no minority uh, dispensaries were approved, and it looks like none may be for quite some time. Look, the state law anticipates that the, the medical marijuana industry is going to have a leg up and a head start. It's not surprising 
because this has been an, an industry that's been in place for now several years, that the vast majority, if not the entirety, of that marketplace is run by um, white men. That's not a news flash. And it's unfortunate that members of the city council, knowing that that market exists, some of whom have spoken um, in very praiseworthy terms for some of these dispensaries that have been located in their wards, knowing full well who their ownership is, are now um, recoiling at the fact that this marketplace is controlled by white men. Look, it's not something that I think we should just take as a nothing but we've got to work within the strictures of the state law to do what we can to open up opportunities for um, women, but also for people of color. And I think there's opportunity there under the existing regime of state law. But the one thing that we can't do is treat this like it's a construction contract, where in effect we can muscle the white contractor into partnering up uh, with black and brown folks. State law actually effectively precludes that from happening. So the opportunities are through social equity, through craft growing, and other means. What I've asked members of the Black Caucus, and particularly Chairman Irving, is come up with a strategic plan, not tactical maneuvers. Tactical maneuvers are not going to get the job done. A strategic vision on how we open up this marketplace is something that I'm open to. I've given them multiple ideas. For example, one of the things that I think would be helpful is for the city itself to get into the cultivation market. We could form um, a co-op looking at vacant buildings, looking at vacant land, give an opportunity for black and brown folks to learn the business run by um, an expert, and then turn that um, business over to them over time once they get their sea legs. It's extraordinarily expensive to get into the cultivation business, but it's the most lucrative part of the business. The other parts of it are retail, of course, but also trucking, also banking. There's lots of ways in which we can bring black and brown folks into this market, but what we need is a strategic vision for that and not just tactical maneuvers to say no. Is it fair, though, for some of the aldermen, and, and most of the ones I heard speak, did not want to want partnerships because they say those are usually not real anyway. Um, but is it fair to, uh, to suggest that most of the minority participation, at least in the beginning, is just going to be on the consumer end and that that's, uh, you know, that's not... No, I don't, I don't think that's accurate. If you look at... A number of entrepreneurs who have spoken up both in public meetings but also in private consultations with excuse me, members of the Black Caucus, what you're going to hear is people who have looked at the law and figured out ways in which they can um, put together investments and resources so they can actively participate when that market opens up um, in May. So it's not just on the retail side not, and certainly not just on the consumer side. Is it going to be as robust as we would like in a perfect world? No. But we've got to make sure that we're not doing harm to those um, minority entrepreneurs who have relied upon the existing law, have gathered investors, and are ready to go come May 1st. This may not be the perfect example but uh, because it is governed by state law, but are you finding that the effort to... Um, view new policies and to put things into place w- through a lens of, of equity is proving more difficult or frustrating than you might have just by, by inertia of government. 
No, I don't think so. I mean, putting this to one side the cannabis issue, which mm -hmm. is kind of unique, everything that we have done um, from a policy perspective really has been with an equity lens. For example, a lot of the work that we've done around fines and fees reform, that has been motivated by the um, inequity that we've seen, that the city has for way too long um, balance a big part of its budget on the backs of black and brown folks who are least able to shoulder that burden, whether it's um, eliminating uh, the taking of uh, driver's licenses for non-moving uh, violations, whether it's on um, providing people with a real avenue to um, pay down any debt that was owed, whether it's on water or sewer um, um, <clears throat> funding um, and access, which we're uh, implementing in the new year, all of those things have been driven by a need to make sure that we are focused on equity and not excluding black and broke, black and brown folks <clears throat> from employment, from the marketplace, or otherwise um, really overburdening their lives because they are poor and struggling. So, um, and in doing that work, we have started by talking to people whose lives are directly affected to make sure we really understand all the nuances and then having them as our partners along the journey in formulating policy. Mm. So it's, I think it's been an incredible experience for us. Um, it's been uplifting um, to hear the stories of people whose lives have um, been uh, adversely affected and whose lives are going to be <clears throat> improved because of the policies that we're putting into place. That's what government should be about. Have, have there been any things that you wanted to get done faster that you haven't been able to do? Well, look, when you're engaging with the community in the way that we are engaging, and I think that's a necessary part of the process, it's not fast or quick. It, it is, but it's the right thing to do because I know from my own work in the public sector, you can have the greatest policy, but if people feel like they've been left out along the journey, they're not going to embrace the end product. The process is, is just as important, if not more so, than the end result. What do you say to um, maybe community activists, but even some community organizations that will, and it can be various topics. Uh, it can be mental health. It can be homelessness. Mm -hmm. um, people who were expecting, you know, just the sun, saying the sun and the moon would be trivializing it. But we're expecting a lot. And, you know, express disappointment. And mm -hmm. sometimes they're doing it hesitatingly. They mm -hmm. say, we don't want to say anything really bad. We know what, you know, but it's just not happening. I, I would say $1 billion. $1 billion is the size of the deficit that we walked into for 2020. And, and given that reality and also a desire not to crush people again with an outsized property tax increase, we had to make some tough choices. And yeah, we would love to be able to do more, but I think we have laid down a marker for the kind of um, investments that we think are crucial for the city to make. We've doubled, in instance, for example, we've doubled the amount of uh, money that we've invested in homelessness. Is it what the advocates want? No, but it, it, it is a significant step in the right direction. Same thing around mental health. Is it everything that the advocates want? No, but have we put together what I think is a very thoughtful framework that's gonna open up opportunities and access for thousands of more people to be served? Yes. So we can go on and on, and no, we haven't done everything that every advocate or that I would even want, 
because I have to look through the lens of what is in the best interest of the city at large and including our taxpayers. And yes, there's lots of different things that we could do and generate revenue in a lot of different ways, but at the end of the day, is it going to relieve the burden on people who are least able to shoulder it, or is it going to drive business out of the city? If we are focused on those two directives, as I am, then there are going to be a lot of choices that we're not going to make because it ha- it's antithetical and harmful to, I think, those two imperatives about growth and inclusivity and fairness. Um, I want to at least look at the race issue from a broader point here, and that is things like, and I'm going out into uh, referencing some things out in the suburbs, the Buffalo Wild Wings mm-hmm. uh, incident in which mm-hmm. uh, some customers were asked to move because an, uh, another customer Co- nearby. Completely wrong-headed mm-hmm. in every way. And, in and, every way. And I, I would <clears throat> quickly point out that your counterpart in Naperville, uh, who probably philosophically wouldn't be standing next to you on a whole lot of things, was felt would have said exactly and said exactly the same things but does the fact that something like this could happen and that it could be a long-standing customer that yeah and and i'm not just saying buffalo i don't want to single out buffalo wild wings but that this kind of racial uh animosity is 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 deep set yeah. and 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 showing up in places where you don't expect it and and really um you know a, a much deeper problem than we well, sometimes think the, the practical reality is is that racism and hatred still exist in our country it's 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 we would be naive to think that it suddenly disappeared you know i think a lot of people felt like with the election and then re-election of barack obama as the first ever african-american president that somehow we were in a post-racial environment that's not that's not right it's not accurate um you know it's not the lived experience of black and brown people and religious minorities in our country the hatred is still there we see it manifest in lots of ways some of it's subtle but we see it in um, the attacks on religious institutions we see it in the buffalo wild wing and other incidents like that so the thing that we have to do is be very clear and speak our values in an unequivocal way and work to make sure that those values are embedded in the policies that we advocate and that when it when those when there's a deviation from that, we call it out and we stamp it out. Do we have to have more of the difficult conversations that people talk about having? I'm not sure people actually have them. Uh, but, but I mean, what do we do to, you can't legislate people changing people's minds, but what do you do? No, I think the thing that we have to do is to make sure that we continue to open up corridors of opportunity for uh, women, for people of color, for religious minorities to participate in the fullness of our city, to full participate in um, institutions that have historically um, left them out. Um, and we have to do that because if we do that and we and people who are um, who are quote-unquote different, have a seat at the table, have a position of power, it's going to change the conversation in those rooms fundamentally. That's, that's, that's absolutely a process that we have to go through. We also, I think, have to, to look to our children and make sure that um, we are doing everything that we can to preach tolerance and the value of diversity to our young people um, as soon as they are able to understand and comprehend it. Is this harder to do in an atmosphere where 
some of this becomes politically charged. And I'm not just pointing at yeah. the White House, but but we have to point some ways. In, it, in it, is, it is harder in this environment because civil discourse has become so toxic. Um, social media, for example, is a blessing in many ways, but it's a curse to, for people to allow, assume anonymous um, identities and spew hatred from a distance and safety. That's a huge problem with social media. And it's something, frankly, that the social media platforms have to do a much better job in addressing. They can't just let people spew hatred without any consequences. Um, that's an issue. But again, I, I think the way we fight hate, the way we fight racism, xenophobia, is to, is to make sure that we are wrapping our arms around um, communities that would otherwise be villainized and uplifting and supporting them. And that's what we've been trying to do over the seven months of my administration. You take, for example, um, the way in which immigrant and refugee communities have been portrayed in this country. You know, I've said this many times because I believe it to be true. I will always stand with them because it's the only moral choice. I'm old enough to have grown up in the United States at a time when racism against black folks was on the table. It wasn't sub rosa, it was on the table. There's no question that I was denied opportunities because of solely because of my race, that I was discriminated against, that I was called every horrible name that you can think of to my face as a young person. So knowing that and coming from that experience in the, in the, the history of the original sin of slavery, um, to not support our immigrant and refugee communities would be an anathema to who I am and frankly would be betraying my history as a black woman who's come from struggle, whose parents grew up in the segregated South. So I feel a real kinship and relationship personally and connectedness to immigrant refugees, to religious minorities. Like, for example, we have a big, thriving uh, Orthodox community. I'm not an Orthodox Jew, but I understand the struggles and the importance and how they have been villainized and victimized um, through the centuries. So I stand shoulder to shoulder in support with that community. And it goes on and on and on. We have 140 different languages that are spoken in our city. We have people coming here to Chicago for a better life, a life of freedom from all across the world. We have a responsibility to support everyone, regardless of country of origin, status, um, and zip code, race, ethnicity, goes on and on. I feel really strongly about this is why Chicago is a great welcoming city and we've got to do everything that we can to support it. Are you still, are you disturbed, disturbed that sometimes we still hear people using, uh, comfortable with uh, racial slurs oh, and the absolutely. like? And I mean, I've heard people <laughs> use the N-word in what would otherwise be considered polite conversation. Well, <clears throat> I also am uncomfortable with as an African-American being in black social settings where I hear people sometimes say things that are disparaging about other races, I just want to say, hold up, folks. We never will have the luxury of thinking that we are not going to be subject to discrimination. So how can you not see kinship with other racial and ethnic minorities? I don't get that. So you know, call me a unicorn or what have you. But when I come from my experience as a, you know, low income person of color, also a member of the LGBTQ community, I see 
why it's necessary for us to um, build relationships and strong bonds across the silos that might otherwise separate us because that unity is what gives us strength. You're listening to At Issue on WBBM News Radio. I'm Craig Delamore, and that was a conversation with Mayor Lori Lightfoot about race and racism. We're going to continue the theme with someone from a group on the front lines of dealing with the racial issues. Calmetta Coleman is the Senior Vice President for External Affairs with the Chicago Urban League, and the Urban League deals with so many parts of life in the city that are touched by race. Calmetta, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Craig. Uh, well, let me ask the 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 big uh, the big question: Is Chicago getting better about race or worse? I mean, for example, there are certainly more African American and Latino business people around than there used to be, but sometimes it seems as if tensions are as high as before, if not worse. So it's it's an interesting question, and I think the the fair answer is is both. Right. So in some ways, certainly you can't deny that the city has gotten better. When I think about the history of the Chicago Urban League in this city, uh, the Chicago Urban League was, was founded in 1916 to really address the needs and issues related to African-Americans who were migrating from the South, seeking opportunities in this industrialized city. Um, and we're met with those racial tensions that you're talking about now. And so that was really where we saw the beginning of um, issues around housing um, and discrimination overall that really uh, bubbled up um, between white people and black people in terms of, you know, territory um, and just really not wanting to kind of bring those cultures together. So a lot of things have changed in terms of we actually now have um, some policies that allow more black people to be in certain kinds of jobs that we weren't holding before. Certain positions of power you certainly see um, occupied even in, in the uh, by African-Americans, even if you look at the fact that we now have an African-American female uh, mayor for the city of Chicago. So we can't deny some progress. At the same time, I say tensions in this city and across the country. Race, uh, racial issues are still very real. Uh, there still is a lot of uh, hatred and discrimination out there. And quite frankly, in the city of Chicago, a lot of it is systemic and institutionalized, really hearkening back to uh, the history of this city and in some ways the history of the Chicago Urban League. Um, I'll mention that, as you're probably aware, 2019 is the 100th anniversary of the race riots of 1919. And, and that, um, the Chicago Urban League, along with the Newberry Library and some other organizations across the city, uh, this whole year have been looking at how that incident really sparked um, a lot of the kind of policies and practices that really led to institutionalized racism in our city. Well, I want to uh, bring all of this uh, up to today and, and for some of the things that we were talking about in the first half of the show, and that is having an African-American mayor, an African-American woman as mayor seems really promising. But should people, especially black and Latino people, not expect too much, especially in this early time? Or is it fair to say, you know what? No, things should be much better. So I have to say that we should always expect our fair share. Does that mean that we'll always get it? And will we get it at the speed at which we would like to get it? Um, probably not, but we have to keep fighting. So I, I will also go back and say that we're, we're very excited and pleased to have uh, this historic moment of uh, an African-American female woman um, 
being the you know CEO of our city. Um, we're also very encouraged by some of the early things that she has done in terms of really the focus on um, a chief equity officer and really looking at you know these issues that um, the Chicago Urban League and other organizations like ours have really tried to bring to the forefront for you know many, many years now. So I think that we can't take that attitude that if, if we as organizations would take the attitude of not expecting much, that's exactly what we'd get. So I think that we will just keep continuing to push around and advocate about the issues that do negatively impact African-Americans. And I think that uh, we are certainly ready and willing to take the mayor um, at her word that she wants uh, equity and fairness in the same way that we do. So we continue to be hopeful. How disappointed uh, is it that um, for all the uh, promotion of the cannabis, the recreational marijuana uh, industry opening up here in Illinois, and all the talk was about equity uh, leading up to that, that at least at the beginning, none of the people who will be uh, at the front of that industry are minorities. It is absolutely disappointing. I understand that there are many reasons that um, that is the case, you know, considering the state laws and other other um, issues that we can't necessarily do anything about right now. But what really strikes me is that when you look at what has happened to black and brown people, in the, not just in the city, but across the country, um, in terms of the war on drugs and how um, there's been mass incarceration related to drug use for African-Americans and targeting by police that, um, you know, it's, it's frankly documented that it is uh, sad that there is no kind of immediate and clear path for them to now benefit from, uh, you know, the um, upcoming legality of marijuana. Mm-hmm. So as, as, as the Urban League, t- tell, tell what is the path to getting to a better place here? Uh, is is it that we have to have better economic conditions? Is it more talk? What what can get us to a, a, the next step? So it is um, it's all of those things. So we can have conversations about it, and we we certainly um, as an organization are committed to convening uh, different organizations to discuss important issues. Uh, we think that it's difficult to have conversations about race, real, true conversations about you know, the causes and possible solutions. Um, But at some point, we really do have to get away from only talking about it to actually really finding ways to to seriously address some of these issues. And so you talk, you you mentioned better economic situations. So it's not just that, it's that we've got to have a better quality of education for African-Americans in our communities and our schools. We've got to have um, better opportunities for black business owners. We've got to have more access to jobs and the training and preparation for African-Americans. When you look at things like the unemployment rate for African-Americans in the city compared to, um, quite frankly, um, white Chicagoans and uh, the mainstream in general, uh, those numbers are still startling. And so we actually really have to have a serious look at when, when we are making policies, when we are proposing legislation that we're really seriously considering uh, potential negative impacts to African-Americans and people of color, and that we're taking that into account and how we go forward. And what 
role do you expect the Urban League to have in in all of this? I mean, it's as you're saying, it's an organization that's been around for much of this uh, much of the century, more of than this. So, right. what? Uh, where will you be? So we'll be where we've always been, which is really at the forefront. So the Chicago Urban League, um, we are both a direct service organization and an advocacy organization. So we recognize that there are immediate needs um, that um, the African-American community has in terms of training for jobs, in terms of addressing issues of equity and opportunity. Um, in education, in, you know, access to entrepreneurial support. And so we do that service. We serve more some more than 15,000 uh, Chicagoans each year through our various programs, but we're also an advocate. So we actually, through our Research and Policy Center, do support um, legislation that can have a positive impact for African Americans. And we oppose, frankly, legislation that, um, will have a negative impact. So we conti- we will continue to be an advocate, continue to look at the issues, and, and hopefully also look for more opportunities to partner with the city of Chicago, with other organizations who are looking to achieve those same goals. I'd like to thank Calmetta Coleman of the Chicago Urban League and Mayor Lori Lightfoot for participating this week. To our listeners, if you'd like a copy of this program or just to hear it again, please visit our website, wbbmnewsradio.com. You can also find our podcasts on radio.com. I'll be back next week with another edition of At Issue, and I hope you'll be listening. Until then, I'm Craig Delamore, News Radio 780 and 105.9 FM. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See t-mobile.com.